Welcome to Sci Session. I'm your journalist for this episode. My name is Lu Ming, and today we're joined by psychotherapist Caroline Hickman. She's from the Climate Psychology Alliance, and her research focuses on young people's relationship nature and their feeling toward climate change. So thank you so much for taking the time to meet with me today. I'm very pleased to be here. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so could you talk about your background and the path that led you to your work today? Yes, absolutely. My background originally is in social work, and then I'm in mental health and psychiatry and child protection. And then I progressed to working, training and working as a counsellor and a psychotherapist. Uh, in 20, uh, 2000, I qualified as a psychotherapist, and my dissertation was on our relationship with nature and saltwater, specifically looking at depression and anxiety, but also our relationship with the natural world and oceans and saltwater in particular, because I'm a scuba diver, and what I had started noticing was the degradation of the marine environment. And that was really starting to make me more and more aware of the damage that we were doing to our environment. So then I started to put together that awareness with the scuba diving, with the love of the marine world, with the psychotherapy. And I joined the Climate Psychology Alliance. We're a group that is trying to raise psychological understanding of the climate and biodiversity crisis. We're trying to engage people in thinking and engage people with feeling because we've had the technological solutions for decades for the climate biodiversity crisis and not acted on them. So we really think that really what's one of the barriers to that action is engaging people emotionally, engaging people with how they feel about it. And that may often seem less rational, but it's no less important because, as I said, we've had the technological solutions and failed to act. So actually, it's a relational issue rather than an entirely practical scientific issue. And I'm not saying we don't need scientific solutions as well. So really, my work in the last six years has been researching how children and young people feel about the climate biodiversity crisis. So that was useful because I was interviewing them before Greta Thunberg and before the youth climate strikes from schools. So I've been able to see that actually children and young people have been telling me for years how they feel and how they feel is very frightened and very upset and very anxious. But what makes that worse for young people is when they see adults failing to act and adults failing to take it as seriously as they are. And that compounds that distress for children and young people. So that's my research. And that's research with children here in the UK, but also in the Maldives, in Bangladesh, in the Niger Delta, and other parts of the world. Because I want to be able to support children in getting their voices heard, particularly from marginalized communities. I mean, children and young people are often marginalized voices anyway, generally, because adults can easily and quickly just dismiss the concerns of children. But even more so when you're from those countries in the global south that haven't caused the carbon emissions, which are causing the problems with the climate crisis, but they're paying the price. So, for example, the Maldives will be underwater soon. And the children in the Maldives know this and feel helpless and powerless to act on that. So I want to help get their voices heard. And on the other side of my work is as a psychotherapist, and that's general psychotherapy, but increasingly working with children and adults about how they feel about the climate emergency. So dealing with eco-anxiety, eco-trauma, eco-grief, eco-distress, 
And people's desire to sort of emotionally engage and strengthen their emotional resilience by deepening their emotional engagement with this, their feelings about this by maturing, not trying to get away from those feelings, not trying to strengthen their defenses, not necessarily always about growing up, although I think growing up and maturing is part of this, but also growing down so that we can engage with those more complex feelings because we can't just wish fulfill our way out of this. We have to face the harsh reality of what we've created. But facing that terrible side of things alongside hope and optimism it's not about splitting between one or the other it's about holding attention between the two so that we can have hope and take action but also really have empathy and compassion for the despair of what we've lost and what we've done and it's both that are important not either or so that's where i'm at i live in a very rural place which i'm very grateful for it's very beautiful I like to spend time in the sea as much as possible when I can get to the sea. And I have a much-loved 13-year-old Labradoodle dog, Murphy, on the sofa, who might cough or bark or make noises occasionally, but he's the love of my life, so we'll just let him join in occasionally. Thank you so much. So um, I think it's fascinating that you started working with children all these years ago before the climate strike all yeah. st started. So um, what made you focus on working with children what drew you to this particular age group i at the times five six years ago there was absolutely zero research being done um uh, about how children felt about the climate emergency there was lots of research done on how the impact it would have on children but when you research and look at the impact on children, that further disempowers children and it treats children as though they are passive actors on the stage. And so we're only, you know, it's quite patronizing really. So I thought it was really important to ask them how they felt because it's their future that we're talking about. Children are going to inherit the world that we are creating at the moment. So I thought their voices should form part of that narrative, that discourse about what sort of future world do we want. And I also found that children, there was some fascinating work done about how children engage with nature and the environment differently to adults and how they have this very powerful, strong, empathetic connection with the natural world and see the natural world as having rights. Whereas adults tend to have that sort of knocked out of them over the years and start to separate themselves off from the natural world. But children often don't, so they've got this very strong empathy. So, for example, one of the children I interviewed early on said to me, climate change is happening as revenge. You adults have messed up the planet. Climate change is happening to rebalance something that's been unbalanced. People have lost sight of what's really important. And climate change, it's as if nature is fighting back. So children were telling me about this interrelationship between their own vulnerability, the vulnerability of the planet, and the impact of climate change and the biodiversity crisis. And I thought that there was something really crucial about the way that children and young people could embody that and help adults, in turn, understand about vulnerability and understand about insecurity and uncertainty, because that's what these children were talking about, and that's what adults frequently struggle with.
adults frequently like to think they've got the answers, that they've got control and that they can fix things and that they can find the solutions. Whereas children were a lot more open to, well, we don't know how to deal with this. And I thought that actually what they were saying there was of absolutely crucial importance and part of the hubris and part of the importance of us really surrendering to that egotistical position of we adults, we, we can fix this, we can conquer this, we can beat this. Because actually, as we've discovered with the COVID virus, we can't fight nature. So actually, part, our struggle with nature is partly what's got us into this mess in this place, particularly with the biodiversity crisis and the pandemic, the COVID pandemic, about um, you know poor agricultural methods and you know wet markets and about you know loss of biodiversity making us vulnerable to that virus leaping into humans so surely we need wisdom to help us navigate this and we need natural solutions as well as technological solutions so for example i get very excited about this did you know that uh, seagrass which is really small stuff little brown grass in the sea can absorb more CO2 from the atmosphere than rainforests. So, but we're dredging up seagrass for industry and development and we think nothing of destroying it. But we should be preserving seagrass because seagrass will help us. So of course we need to preserve rainforests, but we also need to preserve seagrass. Whales absorb CO2 from the atmosphere. So we should be protecting whales. So we should be working in harmony in relationship with nature and the natural world. And prior to all of this, sort of 10 years ago, I was doing a lot of research into how working with therapy dogs, for example, would uh, speed up our recovery from trauma. So I had a lot of work in how working with nature could help us repair trauma, how being spending time in nature would help children recover from bullying and distress in schools. So it was a natural relationship, a natural leap to move to the kind of eco-anxiety, eco-distress, because we have the IPCC report, we, we can see the world is getting worse. So really, this is the single most pressing social, political, economic concern for us today to deal with the climate emergency. Everything else is important, but the climate emergency is the biggest problem. Yeah. And you talked about the COVID-19 pandemic, and I read in your recent article, Urgent and Immediate Danger, you talk about your source of anxiety from this pandemic. So um, what do you think we as human beings could learn from our response of the pandemic and apply it mm -hmm. into tackling climate change? Well, that's an excellent question. Uh, the question is, is can we learn, can we develop the humility and the hubris, the, you know, this kind of pursuit of progress above all else is getting us into deep trouble and it's causing the problems that we're now struggling with. And we can see that with the fires in California at the moment. We can see that with the flooding. We can see that with the scale of the environmental problems as well as the scale of the COVID virus. So the virus, I think, is giving us a timely wake-up call that we cannot continue down this path of endless progress, endless development, endless consumption without reaping the consequences and without stopping 
and thinking and asking ourselves serious questions about is that progress really going to give us a world that children and young people can inherit? I mean, it's very unlikely now that we're going to achieve 1.5 degrees of warming. We've pretty much missed that Paris Agreement target of 1.5 degrees. We're pretty much on track for two degrees, if not higher now. Now, with that level of warming, we're going to lose all the coral reefs around the world. And if we lose all the coral reefs, then that, the knock-on effect, not just the distress and the impact of the loss of the beauty of coral reefs and the fish and the whole infrastructure, the whole you know, biosphere that depends on this, but then there's a the knock-on impact on humans who, you, who depend on coral reefs to, you know, for their own living and protection of the landscape and the country. So we are on, you know, we're well beyond our final warning. And if we don't get wise and start to put wisdom and decision-making in the hands of people that have got this knowledge, then we are in deep trouble. I've been talking with a group of climate scientists recently. Now, these are all older white men who've been working in this field for a very long time. And you'd think that they were very powerful figures. And what was really fascinating talking to them was that everything they were saying to me echoed what youth climate strikers say to me. It's men who are in their 50s and 60s and been working for decades, they're scientists, powerful figures, were saying to me, nobody listens to us. Nobody takes us seriously. We've been warning people for decades and they just dismiss our concerns. So these powerful figures, these scientists, were saying the same. They were echoing youth climate strikers. So there's something terribly wrong where we have this endless pursuit of profit and economic drivers, which is egotistically driven by this idea that humans are apex, that it's this anthropocentric worldview that it only matters what humans want and it doesn't matter about the damage and the destruction to the rest of the world. And it's a complete failure to recognize our interdependency with the environment, with nature. And if we destroy nature, we're destroying ourselves. And if we continue down that road and think we can continue, we will be finished. And we've already caused destruction that cannot be repaired. Even if we went to zero carbon emissions tomorrow, which we're not going to do, it would probably still be too late for the Maldives. It would be too late for Vanuatu. It would be too late for the Niger Delta. Too late for, you know, all of these communities around the world who have not caused these carbon emissions. They've not caused the climate emergency. But with rising sea levels, they will be underwater. They're losing their whole way of life. We're going to have millions of climate refugees. And we're going to need to budge up and make room for them because they've got to go somewhere. So we are culpable in Western industrialized society. We are culpable. We need to take responsibility and we need to step up. And we need to start to deal with that with wisdom and compassion rather than blame. And if we continue to split and divide and factionalize and fight amongst ourselves, we're just heading for disaster. Yeah, so as I'm calling you from California, we can see that the scientific evidence for climate change is right in front of us. So what causes people 
the inability to face climate change and how could we change that? Is it does it just stem from people's ego? Can, is there any way we can change that? Well, that's a really good question. So, you know, there is. We also have to deal with the fact that there is not just mixed messaging about the climate and biodiversity crisis, but there is deliberate misinformation being given by governments. Your government, our government are appalling. And being told, well, what was it Donald Trump was reported as saying today? That he said, well, even the scientists are confused. Now, as soon as he says that, people will take that and believe that the scientists shouldn't be believed. That is deliberately undermining the science. And that is dangerous. Right. And that is misinformation. And that is destabilizing communities and trashing experts. And that is deliberate. And that is so that policy can still be driven by the interests of economics. And that is the billionaires. And so this is in the interests of a very small group of people. And it's a crime, as far as I'm concerned, because it will not right itself. It will not go away. The earth will not cool down all by itself. It's not just your government. It's our government and other Western governments. And some are worse than others. So these powerful figures are not just culpable and responsible, but they're criminal as far as I'm concerned now in the way they're communicating about this, because it is dangerous. And they are deliberately deceiving people and lying to people. So the Climate Psychology Alliance used to have a motto and still does of facing difficult truths. And Chris Robertson this last weekend said, actually, he thinks we should change it to say, why do people lie about this? So we need to start thinking about why people are lying. And it's selfish self-interest, arrogance and greed. It's as simple as that. The more subtle version of that is disavowal. So we've got climate denial, but we've also got disavowal. And disavowal is where people who kind of care will say, oh, yeah, it's really worrying, isn't it? And it's really scary. But where are you going on today this year? So it's almost like with one part of their mind, they worry about it. With the other part of their mind, they go, oh, yeah, but it can't be that bad. Oh, the government will save us. Technology will save us. Oh, the scientists will figure something out. Stop worrying about it. You're a child. Go back to school. Worry about your exams. So they will dismiss and patronize and put down and silence and disallow voices, particularly from children and young people, that are uncomfortable, that, they feel, that make them feel uncomfortable. And quite honestly, my message is we need to be feeling uncomfortable right now because a sign of mental health is that we actually have a real response to the reality of the world going on around us. Anything else is delusional. So my view right now is the reality is you should be feeling anxious, you should be feeling grief, you should be feeling despair. So eco-anxiety, eco-grief is congruent, it's real. And I would worry about people that didn't feel those things. They're either disallowing it or they're in absolute denial, or they've been living under a rock, and they really don't ever look outside their, their doors. So people who are in denial of the problems, they've got the problems. 
as people wake up, they will feel anxious. And then they want to get rid of that feeling of anxiety because it makes them feel uncomfortable. It makes them feel out of control. So then they'll want a solution to that anxiety. So they'll want to be reassured and they'll want to be told, oh, it's okay, we can fix it. Now, unless you can move through that disavowal and wake up and listen to these voices and say, actually, we need discernment. We need critical thinking. And we need to look at the evidence and think, you know what? I'm not going to be reassured because that's the equivalent of lying to me now. So actually, it's very hard to reassure people now. What we can do is we can say, here's the truth, and it's terrifying, and we need to feel how complex that is. We need to feel the grief, feel the sadness, and then we can take action. We cannot go straight from anxiety to action. We've got to go via depression and despair. But it is paradoxically through going through that, that we develop emotional resilience. And then we get the emotional resilience and the emotional intelligence to realize that feelings of depression and despair are not bad things. They're actually the things that will save us because they're real. And that's a sign of sanity. Engage psychologically with the reality that we're being faced. And you look outside and you think, this reality is pretty bad. I should be worried. I should be upset. I should be angry. And we need to start to take action on that. So it's incredibly complicated, but really the bottom line is we need people to now wake up and take action and realize that time pretty much has run out to take action gently. So we need this kind of ruthless compassion. We need to push people into this awareness. I want to read you something. Ours is the last generation that will have the choice of wilderness, clean air, abundant wildlife, and expansive forests. The crisis is that severe. We live in perilous times. The peril is of our own making, and many of us probably deserve it. But the children and the native peoples of this world, and most important, all the other species, sashaying around in this great dance of life, don't deserve the peril we have created. The ecologist Raymond Dasman says that World War III has already begun, and it's the war of industrial humans against the earth. He is correct. All of us are warriors on one side or another in this war. There are no sidelines, there are no civilians. What's important is you do something now. It is urgent, do something now. Now that sounds like Greta Thunberg, that sounds like these climate strikers, that sounds like climate activists today. The problem is, is that was published in 1991. And those ideas have been around since the 1960s. We knew, and we failed to act. And we have to face up to that, take responsibility for it, not collapse in despair and guilt and shame and go, oh, it's terrible but go, yeah, we've got to get real, we've messed up, now what can we do about this urgently? And if we don't, then we should be ashamed. Yeah, so could you talk more about eco-anxiety? It kind of has become a buzzword these days, and yeah. from what you just talked about, it's very real and it's a very rational response, but it's also affecting people's mental health. So how should we yeah. cope with eco-anxiety? Absolutely. So I'm always grateful for anything that gets people talking about 
feelings. I'm a psychotherapist. We want people to talk about how they feel about things. Eco-anxiety is like the gateway to a conversation about how we feel about this. But it's not just anxiety. It's grief. It's loss. It's despair. It's anger. It's guilt. It's all of those complex emotions, which includes hope. And it includes desire to create a different world. One of the crucial things here is to not feel alone with this. Community and coming together, collective understanding is crucial. This is not just an individual problem. It's a collective, social, global problem. And that is one of the things that reduces your anxiety and creates empathy and creates connection. What we want as human beings is to be seen, to be heard, to feel understood. And then we don't feel alone. So by communicating, by sharing these feelings of eco-anxiety, you're absolutely right. It can reduce the distress. It can reduce the despair. And it reduces the suffering that people are feeling. They absolutely do not want to feel alone with this. So as a psychotherapist, I spend a lot of time talking with people about this. And nearly always the first thing I say is, you're not crazy. It, you have every right to feel this way. It makes perfect sense. I understand. Your feelings make perfect sense. You're not crazy. I get it. And that in itself reduces the stress, reduces the isolation. Really, it's often the feelings about the feelings that cause us most distress. So the problem is, is we feel anxious or we feel depressed. And then we start telling ourselves that we shouldn't feel anxious or depressed or other people tell us we shouldn't feel anxious or depressed. So then you're feeling anxious and then you feel anxious about being anxious. Or then you're feeling depressed and you feel depressed about being depressed. And then you beat yourself up critically and you give yourself a hard time and you start shaming yourself and you say, oh, I'm such a weak person. I'm stupid because I'm depressed. I've got nothing to be depressed about. And then let's say one other person says, what have you got to be depressed about? You've got, you know, you've got X, Y's. And then you, you say to yourself, yeah, I'm so ashamed. I'm a terrible person. And then you stop telling people how you feel. So you hide how you feel. And secretly on the inside, you're feeling worse and worse and worse and worse. Okay, this is lethal. So it's the feelings about the feelings that are dangerous. And it's the way we talk to ourselves about our feelings. This is lethal. We need to have permission. We need to have tolerance. We need to have shared understanding that all of these mixed feelings make perfect sense. There is always meaning in them. Just because they don't make sense to you, they will make sense to somebody else. And we often need somebody else to help us make sense of what we're going through emotionally. So we need that shared relational understanding within which there is compassion, there is empathy, there is care, there is understanding. And that empathy connects us to others. And then we don't feel isolated. And then we don't feel alone. So I'm trying to reframe eco-anxiety as eco-empathy. So rather than saying that you're suffering from eco-anxiety, I'm trying to say, oh, fantastic, you're suffering from eco-empathy or eco-compassion or eco-care. Because you know what? You would only feel anxiety because you care. And this is not a crime. This is a good thing to care about the world in which you live. So we should be celebrating that. We should be supporting you in that. We should really be questioning when people don't care. So this is a, a, an eco failure to care. Or a, what can we call it? A kind of, you know, 
an eco-narcissism or an eco-selfishness where people don't care about other people and they don't care about the planet and they don't care about loss of species and they don't care about other countries suffering and going underwater. So we should be labeling that as problematic and we should be celebrating eco-anxiety. You're absolutely right. We need to be genuinely present for people with that suffering. But it is that relational support that people need. They don't need treatment. They just need to be told that they make perfect sense. They're not crazy. I get it. I feel the same. But then we can model and show people, not just I feel the same and I'm okay. So I feel anxiety. I feel depression. And you know what? I'm still functioning. I'm okay. And actually, I don't want to lose my anxiety and depression because it connects me and it helps me feel empathy. I just don't want it to overwhelm me. So I need to keep my anxiety and my depression in balance and regulated with feelings of optimism and hope and compassion and courage and determination and anger and resilience and a kind of feeling of, well, we might be going off a cliff, but I'm going down fighting. So we need to kind of get, have that mix, that balance, and allow ourselves to move between those feelings. You know, the kind of Western medical model says we should feel good and we should get away from bad feelings. I'm saying those bad feelings give us sensitivity, they give us compassion, they give us care. And they're not bad. <laughs> they're, they're wonderful. That struggle it might be uncomfortable, but you know what? Make friends with your feelings of pain and just don't let them get overwhelming. And then they will be your best friend and they will give you resilience. I talk about not just external activism around the climate and biodiversity crisis, but also internal activism. And this internal activism means making friends with your depression, your despair, your rage, because you know what? That will fuel your activism and give you resilience for the future. So it's about reframing those feelings so they're not bad and they don't overwhelm you. Yes, absolutely. So on that note, thank you so much for meeting with me today. Thank you for sharing your wisdom and your knowledge. It's been lovely talking to you and thank you. And I'm, you know, my heart goes out to you in California. You're facing an awful time. And we do care here in the UK. Our hearts are with you. Thank you so much. And that's it for this episode of Sci Section.